Good morning, and welcome to episode 458 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Baseball Reference Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined as always by Sam Miller. How are you? Good. Ready to play index some stuff. Yeah, well, don't get a, don't get ahead of yourself. I'm not getting ahead, but I've been doing, I mean, I've got four play, I've got four play index items. Tonight. Wow. Yeah, you know, but they're quick, but they're all, play index was uh, extra fun tonight. Huh. And extra helpful. Wow. We don't get four times the sponsorship money for doing four times the play indexing, but we just can't help it. Mm-hmm. Ben Revere hit a home run tonight. That yep. seems notable enough to mention. Mm, not our story. No, it never was. It, it's, it, that's not... No, we never no, owned that, was, our, that, we never we owned were, that one. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, other people got to that well before we did, but still... For 1,466 at-bats, 1,500-something plate appearances into his major league career, he hit his first home run, and it was the, the longest stretch to start a career since Frank Tavares in the early to mid-70s. Yeah, and these these sorts of never-having-done-something records are just so, so precarious, because now he's nothing. Now now this mm-hmm. doesn't exist. It, what mm-hmm. did he do? Nothing. He did nothing. If he had hit it with, in his first home run, uh, in his first plate appearance, it would have been basically the same. He didn't set a record for the longest into his career, mm-hmm. and he doesn't currently have any sort of record. Nope. It's just it's nothing. It's nothing. He's dead to us now. He is. They should release him. <laughs> um, yeah, and it was it was hit into the into the first row, but uh, but the fan who caught it in the first row was standing at least, so it wasn't a total total wall scraper. How tall? He looked like a fairly large gentleman, mm-hmm. and he, he, he was holding it, you know, maybe caught it shoulder height or so. So mm, That's a good poke. Got over with a few feet to spare. Um, and it was, uh, it was a good day for pitcher, pitchers and elbow injuries. We, don't, we haven't had a lot of those lately, but we had two, two scares in recent days with Jordano Ventura and Noah Syndergaard, who both had elbow pain and had MRIs, and they came back clean. Uh, they came back with no structural damage. Of course, we know that that once you've had any sort of elbow problem on your on your ledger, you are uh, at a higher risk to have a more serious one in the future. So maybe they're not ever completely out of the woods, but but they're okay for now. So that's good. You know what I just noticed, Ben, is that if you say MRI, it uh-huh. sort of sounds like uh, like you're saying slurredly, "I'm all right," which <laughs> is the opposite of an MRI. That's right. Mm-hmm. But these two guys are all right, so that's that's nice because we've we've talked about our fatalistic attitude toward elbow injuries, and as soon as someone feels something, we assume that that they're gone for the next twelve to eighteen months. So I would bet a dollar that one of them has Tommy John in the next year. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know that I would bet against that. Yeah. Um, also, uh, there was some Smash Mouth news today. <laughs> After we talked about Smash Mouth's Astro Lounge, someone made a mashup of All-Star and the Shawshank Redemption, where they cut in All-Star into the scene where Andy Dufresne breaks into the warden's office and plays a song on the the prison PA while everyone listens, and they mm-hmm. made it All-Star. And that was a uh, thing on the internet today. Yeah, well, Lemon Demon, who's a... I don't, do you know Lemon Demon? No. Lemon Demon is like an internet celebrity from like a decade ago, 
mean, that's when he's originally from. He's famous, I, I would say, mostly for uh, Ultimate Showdown of Ultimate Destiny. Do you know that? Mm. Well, lots of people do. Anyway, uh, he now makes various mashups, and he did an entire album of Smash Mouth's, uh, I believe... I believe it's All Star. I believe every song is mashed up with All Star in uh-huh. some in some interesting way, and it's really fairly brilliant. I mean, it's a pretty amazing album. It's it's available online. It's free. You can find it. Yeah, someone someone posted a mashup of uh, All Star and Float On in the Facebook yeah, that's, group. Yeah, that's that's part good. of it. Yeah, that's yeah, good. That's part of that's him. That's, oh, that's okay. him. Yeah. So right. hey, I have a question, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I uh, I was uh, out and about today, and I, I somebody drove past me. Uh, bumping very loudly the Offspring song, Why Don't You Get a Job? And I was just wondering if you still listen to Americana. <laughs> no. Um, I did have an Offspring phase, like a brief one, when uh, I think it was when Crazy Taxi came out for Dreamcast, and all, the whole soundtrack was was Offspring, so I listened to some Offspring for a while. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oak doke. Okay. Smash Mouth update done <laughs> for the day. Right. All right, so listener emails is what we're doing today before we do play index. So let's start. Um, well, let's start with a couple scouting related questions. This one's from Mike, and he says, "I just finished Dollar Sign on the Muscle and was intrigued to learn about the MLB Scouting Bureau. Its original intent to more economically provide scouting info to whichever teams bought in." I've gathered via Google that it still exists and that they run the scout school Ben attended, but I'm wondering if you guys have a sense for how it works nowadays. Do teams still have to buy in for access to its scouting reports? If so, are there still teams that opt out? And if so, which ones? And are there teams that still rely only on the Bureau for scouting info and have no internal scouting departments of their own? And the answers to those questions are uh, that, yes, it does exist, but it's no longer the the independent organization that it once was where teams had to buy in and the teams paid a certain amount for access to the scouting bureau's scouting reports, which funded the scouting bureau. It is now, uh, it's a, a centralized, it's been brought into major league baseball. It's, it's a centralized scouting organization within the baseball office office of the commissioner to quote its website. And, uh, so every team just automatically is subscribed to it and, and funds it collectively. There are not teams that opt out, and and there are not teams that that rely only on the bureau and do not have their own scouts. Um, and it's still, I suppose, it's a it's a cost cutting measure still, in a sense, and it's a a labor saving measure. Um, the scout bureau has many scouts, and they file reports on lots of prospects in every area of the country, and they collect biographical information and medical information and Teams uh, don't have to expend as much effort to do that. They don't have to worry about missing a guy completely because generally the scouting bureau will will file reports on pretty much anyone notable. Um, and so that's the purpose that it serves. But I want to connect that to a question from Vinit in Milwaukee who says, Russell Carlton wrote today about the amateur draft and how MLB, MLB teams are pretty bad at picking winners This is nothing new, but it's always fun when Russell uses math to prove things. And Russell's article shows that uh, that, you know, the correlation between draft bonus money and career production is is not particularly strong. uh, And it gets much less strong after the first round that after the first round teams are are kind of guessing in a sense. 
or at least on the whole, it appears that they are guessing. Maybe some of them are terrible and others are really great, but it kind of washes out on the whole. And so Vinit says, how much money would Major League Baseball teams save by firing most of their area slash amateur scouts and buying a subscription to Baseball Prospectus and going off Jason Parks's prospect list? So let's say that let's say that uh, they have a subscription to BP. They they have a subscription to any prospect content on the Internet, and they also have their scouting bureau info. So they get reports from the scouting bureau scouts. How much of a competitive advantage do you think they would lose or how much of a competitive disadvantage do you think they would be at from relying on a a combination of the best available public information and the scouting bureau and putting the money that they would pay for their scouting department to something else i don't know what you're asking me i'm asking you i don't want to answer because i don't want to i don't want to play into any caricature (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I think that uh, I think that the publicly available information seems to me to be very good. It is not coming out of nowhere. It is largely sourced from all right. thirty teams. And we talked right. about this with Kevin Goldstein actually mm-hmm. in episode one hundred, yes. very special episode one hundred uh, with our first special guest. And um, uh, you know, these these reports are so well sourced that in a way, you could argue we challenged Kevin on this. You could argue that uh, possibly. Kevin was actually better sourced when he was at Baseball Prospectus and had access to a limited amount of data from all 30 teams as mm-hmm. opposed to all the data from one team. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what, you know, that what the publicly available uh, scouting is. And so I coupled uh, with, you know, some people who actually have scouting yes, abilities and exactly yeah, and might well, get hired as scouts at some point. Yeah, definitely. I mm-hmm. mean like people have at baseball prospectus yes exactly uh and many will um so so yeah i mean i don't i don't want to say that it'd be an advantage because i think if it was an advantage one team might have tried it Mm -hmm. and so that seems to be some indication that it wouldn't you wouldn't have an advantage i also don't want to say it would be an advantage because that sounds wrong that sounds dumb that sounds like you're dismissing the value that scouts bring and that's not my indication at all uh, however, I do think that there's probably some wisdom, at cra- wisdom of crowds benefit that you could get. And uh, secretly, I would never say this, I would never say this on a podcast, mm-hmm. but secretly I might think <laughs> that a team could get an advantage. That certainly I might think, I might think, I'm not saying I do, I would never say I do, but I might think that it's reasonable that one might think this and I'm one, so I might think this, right. that the worst teams... Uh, th- when it comes to scouting, would benefit from mm-hmm. ditching their their uh, their. And so, if you uh, if you agree that, uh, as one might, if you agree that the worst team could benefit from ditching their scouting department, then you're just negotiating how many teams would mm-hmm. do it, and uh, it becomes somewhat less radical to say that they would. So, I would say that the point is valid. Uh, I don't think the point would have been valid 20 years ago. Right. I don't think the point probably would have been valid 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think that the point would have been valid, though, uh, certainly within the past five years and quite possibly right now. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, teams as it is have access to all that information. So they can still, if they want to, they could they could come up with some kind of wisdom of crowds that also factors in their own scouts and and also weights the publicly available information 
you know, to some some degree, right? Yeah, they, so then you'd just could. be better off. Yeah, they so, could. So the question uh, is then, you know, is the money is that there, you're spending on that on those scouts, is there something you could be doing with that money that would give you a greater return? And I'm not sure what that would be. Well, it's partly the money and it's partly the, the, the sort of bias, the personal bias, the, the, the confidence we have in our own opinions. And uh, it could be that um, that teams that have scouts that they're paying money for overvalue those scouts' opinions over the opinions of those scouts they're not paying for. Mm. Um, I mean, these are people that they hired because they thought that they were special. And mm -hmm. not everybody is special. A lot of people are bad. Uh, so, um, and, you know, if the teams knew they were bad, they would have fired those guys. And so they obviously don't know that they're bad. There's got to be at least, what I'm saying is there's got to be at least one team that just sucks at this. Yeah. And uh, doesn't know they suck at it and is overvaluing the degree to which they don't suck uh, at it. So um, the money is not a huge deal, but it's not totally insignificant. I mean, it, I guess it you know it's it's comparable to what they spend on some decent players' bonuses. Mm -hmm. But of course, teams seem to have more money than they can spend on these sorts of things. They have less money than they can spend on Josh Hamilton, but they have more money than they can spend on things like scouts and nutrition. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, probably the money isn't all that significant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That seems fair. Of course, there, as regards the scouting bureau, I mean, Major League Baseball Advanced Media is essentially the new scouting bureau, right? I mean, this is all 30 teams that uh, are collecting data that they all get to share. And, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and same, same arrangement. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, all right. Let's talk about this question from Matthew, who asked us a couple of questions, but we'll answer this one. He asks whether we think the mainstream baseball media, uh, as in most Baseball Writers of America Association members, have a responsibility to explain advanced statistics. Uh, he, is, he is jumping off of the, the Bob Ryan piece in the Boston Globe where he says that most fans don't care about this stuff and therefore it shouldn't be a topic of discussion. Um, and so he wants to know whether we think most fans would care about advanced statistics if they were reported. Do you think the mainstream media has a responsibility to use and explain advanced statistics to more accurately explain what happened to the average fan. Um, and he cites the example of, of Jason Hayward and Jose Molina, who, who might look worse using traditional statistics, but it's clear based on advanced data that they are worth roster spots and they're valuable players. And, uh, and he says that this sort of thing would be common in pieces in the New York Times dealing in economics or science, and it seems odd that sports is lagging behind in that area. Um, so I would say, well, uh, the, the average yeah. person doesn't read stories about economics <laughs> right. and science. That's, that's yes. the big difference. I right. mean, we're talking about a, we're talking about a, a, a readership that is so large as to encompass many people who would never, ever read anything about economics or science. Yes. And so that's a, a big reason that you wouldn't do it in baseball. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're half of your audience is like children, right? I mean, <laughs> that's who people who watch baseball, a lot of them are children. They're like eight. Mm -hmm. Sure. So um, I, I'm sure that the New York Times, I'm sure the New York Times doesn't have the eight year old market in mind when they're writing about economics, explaining GDP or CPI. Mm -hmm. But uh, that said, I mean, clearly this is the way things are going. You see more and more, you know, quote unquote, mainstream media members who who use advanced statistics or 
have a way of of translating the concepts of advanced statistics into you know into easy to understand forms that can be consumed by anyone without necessarily having any familiarity with these things beforehand and uh, I think I mean that's that's clearly the way things are going where where the 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 big writers of tomorrow I think will will mostly or a greater percentage of them will be people who are at least conversant with these ideas at least don't don't reject them and I think really I don't know whether whether the media has a responsibility to to explain these things or to evangelize or anything but I I think you could say that they have a responsibility not to you know to be aware of them right because that's always the issue with with the Bob Ryan piece or with any of these you know uh Bah humbug sabermetrics pieces that pop up from time to time is that they always sort of have these rhetorical questions like, you know, whoa, what would a stat guy say about, you know, so and so and what his war and, you know, just like questions that could easily be answered if you actually ask someone or or read a glossary somewhere. And it's clear that they really have made no effort to understand these statistics or, or concepts and they just sort of rely on the the easy punchline, you know, just cite the cite the complicated looking formula or the the acronym name and sort of go for the the easy laugh track um whereas you could you could actually dig into these things and it's you know it's not it's not uh it's not anything that that a person who's familiar with baseball couldn't understand so i think there's some responsibility if you have a big platform and you're and you're paid to tell people about baseball I suppose if, you know, if you're entertaining the people, if they want to read what you're right, then you you're doing what what you're being paid to do. People are, are paying you to get clicks or to sell papers or whatever it is. So if you're pandering to people who don't want to read about this stuff, then then fine. You're you're maybe doing what your employer wants you to do. But I would say you have some responsibility to be aware of the research and maybe not to outright contradict it unless you have a good reason, you know, to have some sort of some sort of factual basis to what you're saying, the argument you're making. Yeah, I think that you. I think you're right that you, that that's a key point that you have an obligation to be aware of the research, and I think that you have an obligation to uh, say things which are true, mm-hmm. and to explain them in the best way possible so that other people uh, will know what you're talking about and also know that they are true. Uh, partly because it's you know it's good to spread knowledge, and partly because if you don't, then you're going to lose everybody and you're going to fail uh, as a writer. Um, I don't think though that you have any obligation to uh, like look at the long term. Like I, I don't think you, that you need to like make it a point to educate the entire world so that like two generations from now uh, everybody will know what all these stats are. I don't think that you have an obligation to make this into any sort of like, you know, uh, point. Like, I don't think you need to make it a point. I don't think that it needs to be your, I, your, your sort of ideology or your position that these stats are important. I think you should, you should just only say things that are true. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty easy to do that without making a show of it on. And I would say that that's true on both sides. I think that it's pretty easy if you if you don't buy into this stuff to write um, about players using traditional stats. I mean, I wouldn't read them, but <laughs> you can write about players using traditional stats without making a show of it. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. problem is that a lot of writers like to make shows on both yeah. sides. Or and, you can um, even write without using many stats at all. There are many great writers who can 
I mean, you know, I tend to like the Bible. There are no there. There's only like I mean, I guess Numbers and Deuteronomy had a lot of stats. Lots of lifespans in there. There are, yeah, and and cubits. I question question some of the accuracy, but I, I mean, I don't know, but um, but the uh, yeah, I mean, there are many writers who just kind of focus on the human interest angle or the the aesthetics of baseball and how things look and you know, green of the grass and the crack of the bat and all that. And some people are really good at that and can do that in a compelling way. And they don't necessarily need to shoehorn any sort of stats in there. Although generally I tend to gravitate toward the, the people who do. Yep. All right. You want to take us on this play index odyssey? <laughs> all right. So they're all, they're all fairly quick, or at least uh, they, they're, some of them are fairly quick. Uh, and there, uh, there are four because I got a bunch of questions that were fairly answerable play index related questions uh so the first one is uh is is actually very easy this was asked uh of me by uh the twitter user spodiotis which is a great name for a twitter user who wanted to know uh lavarnway was announced as a pinch hitter and then pinch hit four can play index tell us the career leader in that category <laughs> and yes the play index can uh the career leader in pinch hitting and then being pinch hit four is Dave Hansen <laughs> somewhat predictably? Yeah, I'd say if, you, if if we were if we were in a car on a long car <laughs> trip trying to figure this out, we probably would figure it out by Barstow. So his sixty three <laughs> times Dave Hansen pinch hit and did not get a plate appearance. Hmm. That is a huge lead over Lenny Harris. Oh, who was that was my next guess. Yeah, at, at number forty four. Uh, and uh, the active leader, in case you're wondering, do you want to guess the active leader? Where was where is John Vanderwall on this list? Number three, thirty-five <laughs> times. <laughs> um, and uh, active leader. So the I the, the great thing about the active leader. There's no is, such thing as like a dedicated pinch hitter anymore. It seems like so. Well, just yesterday, the uh, somebody tweeted about the active leader that the active leader, whose name I'm not giving away yet. His most valuable skill is pinch hitting and then being pinch hit for. <laughs> and this person didn't have, as far as I know, a play index uh, up on his screen. So it's quite the wonderful coincidence. But do you you don't have a guess, huh? I don't. Yeah, well, it's Greg Dobbs. Uh, but mm. he is way behind Dave Hansen. Way behind. He's not even a third of the way. And this the, the, the Dave Hansen, that, that really is a relic of an era that um, mm -hmm. it existed for like 15 years where there was a ton of pitcher specialization and hence a lot of matchups and pinch hitting mm -hmm. and yet not 12 and 13 man pitching staffs yet. Mm -hmm. And so you could carry that pinch hitter that you could burn. And now we have all the specialization, but you just don't have the player to burn. My, my guess is that Dobbs, my guess, I don't know if this is true. I can look in a second. My guess is that Dobbs isn't, uh, hasn't had even his 20 haven't come all that recently. That's the next highest uh, for the active leaderboard is Lance Nix at 13. <laughs> and uh, I was wrong. Dobbs has three already this year. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess he's actually speeding up. He might have a shot. <laughs> no, he had uh, like six in 2008 and six in 2009, one in 2010, two in 2012, two in 2013, and three already this year. All right. <laughs> so that's one. Okay. Uh, second thing is I've already forgotten one. So I might have to, huh? Anyway, second thing, uh, Dan Brooks had this uh, question because Nelson Cruz today was was pulled from a game um, 
a triple short, a triple shy of the cycle. And Dan said that he saw some some complaining about this that really? Nelson Cruz wasn't given the chance to <laughs> to get his triple. And, and Dan just wanted to know, uh, not related to Nelson Cruz exactly, but who are the leaders in being short of a cycle? Or I guess I guess since everybody is shy of a cycle, so mm-hmm. I I guess there who are the leaders in being shy of a cycle? Um, and Nelson so Cruz I, has eight career triples. Uh-huh. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Did, you, did you look that up on Play Index? Uh, no, I could have. Uh, you sure could have. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, so, single... Uh, I'm going to start with the, the easiest one to be shy of. Uh, triple shy of the cycle. The leader historically, Lou Gehrig, 42. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm going to tell you a couple others uh, because uh, this is building to something. Babe Ruth is next with 41. Mm-hmm. And the active leader is A Rod at thirty eight. So when A Rod comes back, if A Rod comes back, that will be something for you to root for. <laughs> he uh, he will have a shot at this record, uh, slim, but he will have a shot at this record. Mm-hmm. Uh, double shy of the cycle, leader Lou Gehrig fifteen, mm. uh, number two Babe Ruth <laughs> nine, uh-huh. and uh, active leader Grady Sizemore huh. with with five. Uh, Single shy of the cycle, number one, Ty, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig. <laughs> uh, each with only three. Nobody's ever topped three. They each had three. And uh, active leader with two, young man, Mark Trumbo. So there's a shot there. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Um, and home run, shy of the cycle, not Gehrig, not Ruth. It's Paul Wayner with 27. Active leader is Jimmy Rollins with 10. Uh, and Gehrig had six, and Ruth narrowly edged him with seven and so if you add it all up because uh, you would uh let's see it looks like uh, garrig uh, beats ruth by six six times he was one hit shy of the cycle um but here's here's my favorite thing about this babe ruth who again second all-time shy of a triple a shy of triple second all-time shy of double first all-time shy of single and a fair amount shy of home run never hit for the cycle oh. and Here's where that. Here's why I really love that. The all-time leader for hitting for the cycle. The all-time leader mm-hmm. hit for the cycle more than anybody else three times. Do you, do you have? Do you know who this is? This is no. a bit of trivia. Babe Herman, ah. which is essentially <laughs> Babe Ruth's name, <laughs> except wow. he was the he was the what is, what is that joke from The Simpsons? The non-union, low-cost Mexican right, right. equivalent or whatever. Yes. Babe Babe Herman is the <laughs> low-budget equivalent of Babe Ruth. It looks like the Babe Herman that you would put in your unlicensed comic book about the 1927, whatever you would call the Yankees in your unlicensed comic book. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he has three. Babe Ruth has none. You really brought that fun fact home. <laughs> I wonder what the uh, odds odds of Ruth not cycling at some point were, because I mean it's a pretty improbable event. But when you have a player as good as Babe Ruth who hit as many home runs as Babe Ruth and hit for a three forty two lifetime average and and played for twenty two years, I wonder what the the odds are that he would not do it at some point. Yep. Calculate that on the spot, please. Uh, all right. The third part I have completely forgotten i have no idea what it was <laughs> i just don't know i'm sorry <laughs> okay <laughs> all right fourth 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 play index segment of the night uh this is the the primary one um do you know my my least favorite fun fact this is a a staple of of uh team 
team press handouts, and it's yeah. my it's my least favorite fun fact. It's uh, actually I do know this because you wrote an article about fun facts, and I'm pretty sure you mentioned it in there. I did, yeah, I did. <laughs> and it wasn't anything having to do with Billy Butler. <laughs> no. Um, mm, remind me. Oh, right. oh, oh. Well, is it is it the mm, it's the it's the it's the is it the one with the the record? Yes, in game. It is. It is. Yeah. Team's record when X yes. happens. <laughs> right, yes. And I I just despise these. Uh, there are two kinds of them that are most prevalent. One is team record when they score five runs or more, which you'll get once they score their fifth run. That'll pop up and they'll, oh, they're 62 and eight when they score five runs or more. But they all have losing records when they score five runs or fewer. It's not like five runs guarantees wins. It's like five or more. But five or fewer... <sighs> It just kills me. But the other one that I really can't stand is the uh, uh, team record when player X homers or team record when player X steals a base or whatever. Because, yeah, if any player in the lineup does a good thing, that's a big head start. You know, if any player in the lineup homers, they're going to win like 70-some percent of their games or or something like that. Mm -hmm. And this was very common with the Angels, with Jeff Mathis specifically. It came up. Uh, it was in every press packet, and I understand Jeff Mathis did not have a lot of things that played well in press packets. You know, is he he uh, he Catcher has ERA only goes so far. Exactly, steady <laughs> hand behind the dish is hard to <laughs> is hard to put into numbers. Less uh, hard now than it was then. Less hard now than it was then. So I constantly was hearing about how what the Angels' record was when Jeff Mathis homered, or you know what the record was when he didn't strike out five times or whatever. And so I wondered uh, whether anybody has been worse in their team's wins than in their team's losses. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, it may, obviously, you're going to be better in your team's wins because that's why your team won. Your team won because you played better, right? Mm-hmm. So I went to the split in, uh, uh, play, uh, play Index Split Finder where you can split by record in wins versus record by losses. I uh, I filtered uh, for all active players minimum 600 career plate appearances, um, and um, then I looked at the uh, split OPS plus, which is basically your your OPS in that split relative to your OPS overall. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it was pretty easy. This was a very easy play index search. Uh, so of this group of 420 players. Uh, there are actually two players who were worse in their team's losses. Uh, sorry, worse in their team's wins than they were in their team's losses. Emmanuel Burris, friend of the <laughs> friend of the show, podcast legend. Uh huh. Yes, and uh, Donovan Solano. And the thing about this fun fact is that, like a lot of fun facts, was there like a, a minimum number of games played here or something? What, what was 600, the uh, six hundred uh, played appearances? Okay. Okay. Uh, 600 plate appearances in within the split, uh-huh. okay. I believe. So, uh, so most of them have you know considerably more than that. But uh, so 600 within the split. And so the thing about fun facts, a bad fun fact, is that it is numbers that are presented in a way that is you know disconcerting enough or lopsided enough that it seems like something is happening, but you're not quite sure what it purports to be saying is happening. And the 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 Jeff Mathis fun fact, but the Angels win 80% of their games when he homers, 
it's supposed to be saying that Jeff Mathis is particularly valuable to his team winning mm-hmm. because when he hits a homer, they win. And so, you know, like he somehow is crucial to their winning. But of course, most days he doesn't homer. Mm-hmm. And so you could you could say like, well, uh, he's much worse when they lose. So he's especially he's especially bad when they lose. Therefore, he's especially damaging to the team when they lose. I mean, it, none of this makes any sense. None of these numbers mean anything. They're just sample sample size nonsense. But like, what it purports to say is not even clear. But I would just like to say that I'm going to forget what I just said and say that Emmanuel Burris did less to make his team lose than any player in baseball history because when his team was losing he was absolutely bringing it he was at his best uh and he he did not contribute to his team's losses and i will say for further evidence of this that of the 420 players the 36th lowest so in the 90th percentile or i guess the 10th percentile and by far the most played appearances for anybody that low i mean everybody who's on the low end of this is just a sample size fluke burris and solano barely played Mm-hmm. Um, but the one guy who has a ton of, san- of plate appearances and is at the very far end of this, so essentially was almost as good in losing effort as a winning effort, was Derek Jeter, huh. the ultimate, the ultimate winner. Of course. <laughs> and and you would think that it would show up by him performing in his team's wins. Oh no, it does not, Ben. It shows <laughs> up in his team's performances in losses. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. <laughs> Jeff Mathis, by the way, his OPS plus or his uh, split OPS. Plus, is almost identical to, to the average. He is no better in his team's wins than the average player is in mm-hmm. his team's wins. Um, and um, uh, I, I also, well, I don't even know if I need to get into this, but I also ran this for pitchers who mm-hmm. have much fewer plate appearances because I had this hypothesis that maybe pitchers would uh, do worse when they got a hit because they would have to run the bases. Yeah. And the, the average split for the average split OPS plus for pitchers is actually lower. Um, so they. There's, there's maybe something it's worth looking at, but probably not. I remember my final play index thing. It's extremely, extremely quick. Ah, good. Extremely quick. I was quick. promised for, and I expected you to deliver for. As you know, play index now has a walk-offs filter, yep. so mm-hmm. you can look only at games that are decided by a walk-off. And uh, so Matt Albers and Ryan Webb, of course, have, <laughs> have finished a lot of games. I was worried that they might not be mentioned on this episode. <laughs> Presumably a lot, some of these games, a few of these games would have been in walk-offs. And I wondered which pitcher was better in walk-offs. And so I looked at, uh, I looked at all pitchers who have decisions in walk-offs uh, to see who had the you know, better record, who had more wins, who had more losses. And as it turns out, Matt Albers is the walk-off king. He is 8-1. and one in walk-offs far more likely to be on the mound uh well far more likely to get the win uh, when his team walks off than to give up a walk-off only one in his entire career web five and six hmm. not not a walk-off hero so score one for team albers <laughs> which is my team uh-huh and uh knock one off for team web which <laughs> i assume is nobody's team because who would ever want to root for ryan webb i still haven't picked a team <laughs> i'm still thinking that over um, all right. Well, good, good play indexing. Um, if you want to do the things that Sam did or other things, I wonder when we, uh, when we answer reader requests for play index, we are in a sense enabling them not to subscribe to play index. It's kind of a conflict mm-hmm. there, but that's ho- a good point, but hopefully they'll be so excited by the possibilities when they actually hear the answer that they will be convinced to subscribe. 
using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. So please, everyone, do that. All right. So let's wrap up with, uh, we, well, I've got a couple questions from, from our friend Dan Brooks. He gets very upset when we don't answer them, so I'll just answer them. Uh, last week, you answered an email about what would happen if the manager took a roster spot but could otherwise be replaced by a regular player. What if, and, and I think we, we basically concluded that every team would take the player or the, the player manager, or most of them would, um, if not immediately. What if every in-uniform personnel, so essentially everyone except the medical staff, took a roster spot and could be replaced with a player? So first base coach, third base coach, bench coach, pitching coach, manager, bullpen coach, etc. Does any of these guys remain? Would we see manager, third base coach, super coach guys, and regular players in every other spot? Would the Astros just field a team of 24 coaches and one guy? What would happen? I think that you would have some. I think in this scenario you would have some some real bona fide coaches. I think that you need to have some some instructors mm-hmm. around. Who, for one thing, the being a pitching coach is very laborious. Being a manager is as it currently is constructed, but it doesn't need to be. You know, like it, you could be a player manager, um, and you know, I mean, talking to the media is takes some time, and talking to your GM takes some time, and filling out the lineup card takes some time, and studying things takes some time, but. You know, if you delegated a lot more of that to your coaches, you know, you could do it. You could kind of re-define re, uh, what a manager does pretty easily, I would say. But being a pitching coach is very laborious. Being a hitting coach is very laborious. And if there's one thing we've learned from pitchers hitting mm-hmm. in the majors, where all these guys were, like, super great in high school, but then their skills atrophy because they don't work on it at all mm-hmm. um, coming up through the majors— uh, it takes a lot of work to stay major league caliber ball player. It's just you know it's too hard to do to to do both at one time. It's too hard to uh, to stay to keep your skills sharp if you don't have the time to do it. And so I, I would think that like for instance you wouldn't want to have your uh, pitching coach and your hitting coach be major league caliber ball players who are dis- distracted. So mm-hmm. I would say that you would still have some coaches. The other thing is that there's just such I mean. I don't even, 26th man is just barely valuable to me. Mm-hmm. Um, 27th, even less so. By 29.30, it's just, it might come up mm-hmm. uh, once, you know, over the course of a year. You might, there might be a time where you re, you you think that having a 29th man is worth a tenth of a win. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't Bring I wouldn't back Dave Hanson, John Vanderwall. Yeah, but I mean, you're at this point. You're basically you're bringing in worse players. I mean, there's only a few. There's a very few guys on a team who you're going to pinch hit for and want to pull out of the game uh, to for you know for the the sort of caliber player who would be able to make a 29 or 30 man roster. Sure. Although I feel like the the smaller the job description, the more players are capable of filling it without necessarily being worse at that job like I've always thought that uh I always kind of thought that you know pitchers today there's 13 pitchers on a roster those pitchers aren't as good like the talent gets watered down when you expand the league or you expand the number of pitchers on a roster each of the pitchers is is therefore not as talented but I think it was uh Matthew Leach who made the the uh, argument on Will Leach's podcast that maybe I'd thought of before, but it never really framed this way, that that 
now that, say, we have one-inning relievers and we have one-out relievers, those guys are are less talented in a sense. They they could not be starting pitchers, but they are not necessarily less talented at, at doing the, the thing that they do. You know, they're mm-hmm. not necessarily less talented at getting one out or getting three outs. There are guys who who only have one good pitch or, you know, maybe two pitches, but they throw really hard and it wouldn't work if they had to go through a lineup two times, but they don't have to anymore. That that job now exists for a player like them who can be elite at that job, which didn't used to exist. And now that it does, more more people are capable of doing that job because you you get your Sean Doolittle or whatever, a guy who just, you know, throws throws one pitch a whole lot uh, and can be really good doing that one thing. So if you had... 29 roster spots and you had you know each of the the bench players roles would be much more specialized so you'd you'd be able to have a guy who's just a really good base runner and can do nothing else Mm -hmm. and you'd be you'd have a guy who can catch the ball and can do nothing else and and maybe a good pinch hitter and can't play any positions you'd you'd be able to carry all those extremely limited players and those extremely limited players might be very good at their their one task so maybe you would actually want to use them. Yeah, you're right. But I, I don't, well, which which kind of coach or manager do you think is the most important to pitching? Achieve? Pitching, yeah, that's my sense. Also, the rest, yeah, I guess you get a, the rest. You could give away, mm-hmm. maybe. So maybe I maybe I was just responding, thinking about pitching coaches. I mean, certainly I'd be fine having your uh one of your relievers be the bullpen coach that seems easy enough those guys are barely working most of the day (laughs) as it is um and certainly the base coaches doesn't seem like a challenge although you know maybe guys want to get off their feet but of course i mean those guys often they often double as like you know infield instructor outfield instructor or stolen base coach or something that's true. That's true. They they often do. You're right. Yeah. And of course, somebody's got to hit the fungos, and somebody's got to mm-hmm. to hit infield, and somebody's got to do all those things. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. I would, I would, I don't know. Maybe three. Maybe you carry three extra. Mm-hmm. Maybe four extra. Yeah. All right. And last thing, also from Dan. Suppose doctors discover a gene that predicts a weakened ulnar collateral ligament that will lead to a greatly increased chance of Tommy John surgery in pitchers, say 500% increased likelihood within the first 10 years of their career. It's detectable with a simple blood test, and the results of the study are completely accurate. What does baseball do? How does the Players Association react if this is suddenly discovered mid-season? Do we end up with a weird Gattaca-like baseball? Are players tested and then converted into position players? Do players test themselves and convert themselves to position players? Do players just not want to know? And this seems like something that we will deal with eventually down the line. I mean, uh, you know, people are already talking about genetic testing of players, and um, eventually that that process will get refined to the point where you'd be able to, to tell whether a, a player had a certain predisposition to, to a potentially career-threatening injury. Um, and so, yeah, is the, the question, will, will we just go all in on that and, and everyone will have access to that information and the people whose genes say they won't hold up will just be out of luck? Or will we move to preserve the, the surprise and the secrecy somewhat? Will we not want 
players' futures to be determined by what the, the blood test says and uh, will want to remain ignorant. Uh, there's going to be a synthetic ligament before it gets to that, and uh-huh. this won't be an issue anymore. I mean, they're, look, they're going to fix Tommy John at some point. They're going to fix Tommy John before they figure out. I would say they're going to fix it before they figure out how to uh, identify the gene. My guess is that. But they're going to fix it. 15 years from now, Tommy John probably won't be an issue, is my guess. We predicted dates for when it wouldn't be an issue. I know. I've now, whatever I, whatever said, I said at the time is I've now... I think you I've, just you moved up the timeline a little bit. I, think, I have. I well, think I said 2039, and you said like 43 or something like that. Yeah. You know, I know it's extremely, extremely, extremely risky to quote Chris Rock jokes. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that joke he has where he says, if you want to cure cancer, you just give the president cancer and they'll have a cure like tomorrow. Uh, I feel like, um, there's, a the, now that everybody's talking about epidemics and stuff, it, there's, I don't know, there's a mobilization at mm-hmm. foot. And I mean, I don't know. It just seems so easy, right. To create a synthetic ligament. Doesn't that seem really easy? Like, doesn't yeah. it feel like, like they're probably already doing that for our <laughs> troops or whatever. And now it's just a matter of convincing, baseball to accept yeah, it it's and probably being done in europe somewhere it's just exactly. not a, not approved by the fda but and there's no there doesn't seem to be any party with power in the game that would have any sort of desire to stop that so yeah I, i'm guessing synthetic ligament <laughs> okay all right so that is the future genetic testing will will be beaten out we won't need it because we'll be able to replace everything that breaks mm-hmm. all right so that is it for the podcast today. Please join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. Send us emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com and rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes via the search bar on iTunes or the link on the, the Baseball Prospectus podcast post. And we will be back tomorrow. <laughs>